So it's all here. The story of our time with the bar call. That was President Lyndon Baines Johnson upon the dedication of his presidential library in 1971. Since then, the library has played host to the biggest names and best minds of our day who have helped to tell the story of our times through candid, revealing conversations with the Barkoff. This podcast delivers them straight to you. Welcome to With the Barkoff. I'm Mark Updegrove. Since this episode drops on Veterans Day, we thought we would devote it to one of our nation's most respected veterans. Robert M. Gates spent half a century of his life devoted to public service. He started his career in the Air Force before being recruited to the CIA, where he climbed the ranks to become the agency's director under President George H.W. Bush, one of eight presidents Secretary Gates has served throughout his illustrious and fruitful career. In 2006, he became Secretary of Defense for George W. Bush, a job he continued for Barack Obama until 2011. He is the first person to hold that post for both Republican and Democratic administrations, a reflection of the esteem in which he has held on both sides of the political aisle. George W. Bush captured Gates' reputation for superlative leadership when he said Bob is a man of vision, integrity, and extensive experience. I talked to Gates about leadership, what makes a good leader, his own leadership style, and the leadership of the presidents he has served. Mr. Secretary, I, I mentioned, uh, uh, I, I talked about George W. Bush's praise for you, but, but there seems to be praise for you on both sides of the aisle for your leadership, your vision, your integrity. Uh, and leadership is at the heart of your book. So let's start there. What, in your view, makes a good leader? Well, I write in the book that I think there is a real difference between being a leader and being a manager. And management can be taught. And it's important. Uh, finance, logistics, personnel, all of those skills are really important. Every organization has to have them. But I write in the book that leadership is more about the heart than the head. Um, Dwight Eisenhower wrote his son uh, in 1943 uh, that what was important in leadership was devotion to duty, sincerity, fairness, and good cheer. Those are not subjects that can be taught. Those are innate inside somebody. And, and I like to say, just because you're high on the organizational ladder and can tell people what to do doesn't make you a leader. That just makes you a boss. A leader is someone, well, a leader is defined as someone who shows the way, who is a guide. So it's somebody who's looking to the future, and it's somebody who is saying, how can we do whatever we do better? and serve the people we are supposed to serve better. And so I think, I think lead, and, and the other aspect of leadership, in my view, that makes it more about heart than head, is that if you don't, if you don't like other people, if you don't respect people, if you don't enjoy people, uh, if you think you're better than other people, 
I don't think that you can be a successful leader in this country. And, and so it really is more of an emotional thing. And the ability to inspire and motivate than it is a technical skill. And the truth is, I mean, we always need good managers, but the truth is we're desperate for leaders. You quote in the book Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who said of Franklin Roosevelt, he had a second-class mind and a first-class temperament. Talk a little bit about temperament uh, in terms of leadership. Well, I, I think... You know, I think if you look at the, at the greatest presidents in American history, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Reagan, what Holmes said about FDR holds true for all of them. They all recognized that, that they weren't the smartest man in the room. And even Washington would write very explicitly about how much better educated the people he had around him were. But what characterized them all was the willingness to have people around them that were, who were smarter than they were, listen to them, integrate their views into their own instincts and experience, and then make a decision. I've, I've left out Theodore Roosevelt because he actually was a first-rate intellect and a first-rate temperament. <laughs> but, but for the rest, and, and you know, I mean, I, I'm, a par I'm paraphrasing from the book, but God help us from the smartest men in the room because <laughs> they don't feel they need any help. They don't, you know, they know better than anybody around them what, what to do, and they don't need any advice. They don't need any help. Um, they also tend not to have a very good sense of humor. <laughs> I like to write, <laughs> of the presidents I worked for, of the eight presidents, two had no discernible sense of humor. <laughs> Richard Nixon and Jimmy Carter. And you can draw your own lessons from that. <laughs> Uh, there was a, a Wall Street Journal review of your book, which, and the headline of which read, uh, Advice from the Anti-Steve Jobs. And there are those who look at Steve Jobs' leadership as being archetypical. He built one of the world's largest companies, continues to be a seminal influence in the world. Uh, but he was temperamental. He was secretive. He was bullying. Uh, he was everything you suggest great leaders are not. And I understand that there are anomalies in leadership. But why would you coach somebody not to be a Steve Jobs? Well, I mean, it's a very good question. And, and the truth is, in, there are obviously, as in the case of Apple, um, instances where a very disruptive leader uh, and one who does not have the characteristics that I write about is enormously successful. But I would say that is an anomaly. And you have to make allowance for those exceptions. But as a rule, I think that people who want to lead reform and change 
in organizations need to be inclusive and transparent. They need to treat, I, I say in the book, you can, be the, you can be the most demanding boss in the, on the planet and still treat people with respect and dignity. Because at the end of the day, in most organizations, both public and private, it's the career professionals who are going to deliver the mission of the organization. And to, if you want to reform, if you want to change things, you need to get them on side. You need to treat them with respect and dignity. You need to acknowledge their importance. You need to draw on their talent. You need to figure out ways to elicit their ideas and their recommendations and their suggestions. Because often, those on the front lines, and I don't care whether you're in a retail business or in the military, those in the front lines have the best view of what's not working. And so listening to them and learning from them can help you devise strategies for making improvements, making and changes that will make the organization far better and far more responsive to whether to citizens or to customers. You write in the book of companies that are revolutionary and then accept their own status quo and that, that, that a leader should never have a finished agenda. Talk a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah, I, I, uh, when, I took, uh, when I became director of CIA, it was six weeks before the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I had a short-term agenda and a long-term agenda. The short-term agenda was to advise President Bush and, and his senior uh, associates what we thought would happen. Well, you know, would there be famine if, when the Soviet Union collapsed? Would, what would happen to 40,000 nuclear weapons? Um, would there be civil war and so on and so forth? But the long-term challenge was how do we redirect this gigantic apparatus called the American intelligence community away from a singular focus on the Soviet Union which it had had for 45 years, and to a very different world that we were going to face. And so I had 25, 24 task forces. Um, the longest, and, and, it, and, and they reached into every part of the intelligence business. The longest deadline of any of them was three months. And so we got all that done by the summer of 1992. But I went on summer vacation, and I came back with a yellow tablet full of new ideas of things we still needed to do. And what I write in the book is any leader whose yellow tablet is empty needs to go home. Because organizations, uh, there are always new challenges, new problems, continuing ways to improve an organization, to make it better, make it more responsive. And when the new leader, as I put it in the book, when the leader runs out of gas, he or she needs to get off the road. And so I didn't, I didn't want to, in the original draft of the book, 
the title of the chapter where I deal with this subject uh, was Permanent Revolution. But I figured most people wouldn't get the fact that that's actually a phrase used by Trotsky. <laughs> and, and maybe that was a little sublime. So, and maybe Trotsky wasn't a great example. But, but he coined the phrase permanent revolution. And my view is when you're dealing with organizations, that's what you need, permanent revolution. And, and if you look at companies, and I cite these companies in the book, whether it's GE or uh, uh, Apple or Amazon or um, a bunch of others, I'm on the board of Starbucks. Starbucks is in the same category, I think. They're always changing. They're always innovating. They're, they will look different next year than they looked this year. They're never happy. And the CEO can come off the best year the company ever had in history. The stock price is at an all-time high, and the CEO sits down with everybody, and he's unhappy. And he's grumpy, and he's saying, OK, how do we keep this up? How do we keep changing? How do we keep innovating? How do we keep ahead? That's true of every organization, and it ought to be as true in public organizations as it is in private organizations. I mentioned in the introduction you've served eight presidents, starting with, with Lyndon Johnson, apropos to this institution. Who comes to mind when you think of the, uh, the best leaders? Who's at the top of that list? Well, they, I, I would say that the, the two that, um, that I felt fit the bill uh, best were probably um, uh, Ronald Reagan and, and uh, George H.W. Bush. People forget, and, and it's one of the reasons why I'm so disappointed in a lot of the Republican candidates right now, because if you listen to them, as far as they're concerned, the country's going down the drain. And the one thing that Ronald Ray, I mean, people forget how bad the late 70s were. Mm. Interest rates at 17 or 18%, inflation at 20%, Soviets had just invaded Afghanistan, there were 40,000 Cubans in Ethiopia, 30,000 Cubans in Angola. We just lost the war in Vietnam. The economy was in the tank. We'd been through two oil embargoes. And Ronald Reagan ran for president as an optimist, basically saying, this is all transitory. We can fix all this. And he had a vision of, of America in terms of rebuilding the economy and strengthening the military and so on. And, and a belief that the Soviet Union could be brought down on his watch. So there was vision and optimism. As a day-to-day -day manager, that was not Ronald Reagan. Um, he had an amazing sense of humor. And I, and I put a big emphasis in the book on a sense of humor. So I'll just tell you one little anecdote. So I'm briefing him before his first meeting with Gorbachev. And he's sitting in a wingback chair, and I'm sitting at the end of a, a couch right there. And, and I start my briefing in the Oval Office, and a couple of minutes into the briefing, one of his, his hearing aid in his left ear began to whistle. And it was really loud, so I figured if I could hear it, it must be painful. And he kind of winced, and he reached up and sort of adjusted it. 
And, and then uh, I went on with my briefing, and a couple of minutes later, it was even louder that it was screeching. And he kind of got this disgusted look on his face. He pulls the hearing aid out of his ear, pounds it in his palm, puts it back in his ear, and as he's putting it back in his ear, he leans over and whispers to me, it's my KGB handler trying to reach me. <laughs> George, George H.W. Bush, there is no precedent in history for the collapse of a major empire without a major war until the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the way Bush managed that, as I put it in my first book, the way he greased the skids on which the communists were slid from power, I think will someday get the recognition that it deserves. And it was kind of a day-to-day -day thing. And the interesting thing is, if you were to reverse Reagan and Bush, it would be a disaster for both. They came in the right sequence and at the right time in history for each. Bush did not have the vision or the communicative skills or the kind of public confidence and persona that Reagan had. Could not have done in the early 80s what Reagan did. Reagan's detachment from day-to-day -day business would have made his management of the actual collapse of communism much more problematic in my, in my view. So you look back and you think, you know, maybe there is a providence that puts these things together. But those, those two, I would say, were the best. I was at the very, first of all, I was incredibly junior. President Johnson was the only one of the eight presidents that I worked for that I never met. Right. Um, because I was just super junior. I will tell you one story about President Johnson's personality, though, from a friend of mine. So CIA was just as divided about the Vietnam War as everybody else. And I had a friend who, at CIA who was very anti-war. And when the president receives a foreign head of state, and there's a state visit, there's a big welcoming ceremony on the south lawn of the White House. And what people don't know is they bus in federal employees to fill the lawn, including CIA. And so my friend said, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to go to that welcoming ceremony. I'm going to get on the rope line. And when the president comes by, I'm going to say, Mr. President, stop the war. So he goes down, he gets on the rope line, and he comes back later, and he says, so I was there. I was right on the front line. I was right on the rope. The president is coming right toward me, and he gets to me, and he sticks out his hand and smiles at me, and I stick out my hand, and I say, good morning, Mr. President. <laughs> but, but, so those, those are the two presidents that I think in terms of sort of vision and day-to-day and -day leadership uh, made the biggest impact on me. Who's the most underrated of, the, of that group of eight? Well, I think of the eight, um, in, I would say a couple of them. 
I would start with Gerald Ford. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think, I think, I mean, it was, it was an amazing thing to hear Jerry Ford after he pardoned Nixon saying, it's time to put this long national nightmare behind us. And Ford pardoned Nixon knowing that it might cost him the election or uh, in 76. But he thought it was the best thing for the country. And this was a guy who was continually underrated. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting how public personas get shaped. So Jerry Ford was probably, up to that time, one of the most athletic presidents we've ever had since Theodore Roosevelt. He would go to Vail and he would ski the Black Diamond Slopes. And the press would wait at the bottom of the slope for him to fall. And that would be the picture that would run. Because he fell down the stairs in Poland of the airplane. And, and you know, never mind the story when Nixon went to Poland, the plane pulled up on the wrong side of the, of the tarmac, and the entire band had to run under the plane <laughs> to get to the other side. Or when President Carter went and, and um, lusted for the entire Polish nation uh, <laughs> in, because of a misinterpretation. But President Ford, once, once the image got out there that he was clumsy, that it was really hard to shake. But he, he, this was a guy who was respected both in, econom- in, in terms of international economics and in terms of politics by people who, uh, like Chancellor Schmidt of Germany, President Giscard d'Estaing of France, and others. And I also think 41 has been underestimated. Now, he's, he's fortunate that he's lived long enough to begin to see a reassessment. Right. But, but for a long time, I think that, uh, I think that he was underestimated. And, that, and, and you know, if you read Meacham's book, it's clear when he made the budget deal and violated the no new taxes, read my lips, pledge, that he knew he was putting re-election at risk, but he did it because he thought it was the best thing for the country. So for me, the, one, the ones that make the biggest difference are those who put um, what they consider the national interest ahead of any re-election concerns. I understand you're not a historian, but you served Barack Obama how do you think history will uh, reflect Barack Obama? I think it's way too early to tell. Um, I think that, you know, I mean, my favorite example is Harry Truman. Harry Truman left office with lower poll numbers than any president in modern American history. He served at a time when the Republicans controlled both houses of Congress. It was incredibly polarizing and partisan. Every bit as much so t- as today, maybe more so. And, you know, I, I um, well, I was going to relate the story that I have in both duty and this story about what my fa- how my father referred to Harry Truman, 
which was not in complimentary terms. Uh, but, but come the 1970s and 1980s, 1990s, all of a sudden, Harry Truman's a great president. So we, we, have, we lack so much perspective. I mean, it's like this gloom and doom we see today. That's because hardly anybody who's reporting on it was alive in the late 70s and remember how terrible the late 70s right. were. Right. I'll get back to... Or the late 80s. I mean, the late 60s, for that matter. Yeah. I'll get back to presidents in a moment, but you were an exemplary public servant for over 50 years. Why are young people not electing to be public servants to the degree that they did in previous generations? Well, I, I would have to say I'm not sure, but what you say is absolutely true, and I cite the statistics in the book. There was a Wall Street Journal article about a year ago that said that um, 28 years ago, or in the late 70s, that 30% of the federal workforce was under the age of 30. And today, as of 2012 or 13, it was 7%. And the thing that I found, that I found both at Texas A&M and leading the Boy Scouts, is that I think young people are every bit as idealistic today as they've ever been. And, when, and particularly when they're in college, and I'm confident it's as true here at UT as it was at A&M. And at most other, and at William and Mary, and most other campuses across the country, there is an amazing involvement of the student body in volunteerism and doing things in the community and and so on, much more so than when I was in college. But for some reason, once they graduate, there is that that tends to fade into the background, and I think part of it is that bureaucracies, whether it's local, state, or federal, are seen as so rigid that young people who are entrepreneurial and, and uh, innovative and want to take responsibility for things look at an environment in which it will be years until they are given the opportunity to do that. And, they, and the prospect that they're going to have to serve in a stifling bureaucracy. The truth is, this is, I think, potentially a problem for the military. And I told the chief of staff of the Army and the commandant of the Marine Corps in the last few months I was in office. I, remind, I, just, I would tell uh, the story of when I became secretary, I visited a, a Ford operating base, Ford operating base Tillman on the Pakistani border. And here's a young Army captain. He's got 100 US soldiers that he commands. He's training 100 Afghans. He's bulldozing roads. He's building schools. He's negotiating with tribal elders. And he's fighting the Taliban. These were small unit wars, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. And both young NCOs and young officers have had the enormous opportunity to innovate, to, to be entrepreneurial, to be decision makers. And I said, you bring those kids back and you put them in a cubicle doing PowerPoints, you're going to lose them. I think that's part of the perception for a lot of young people graduating from college to now, uh, 
graduating from college now that they're going if they go into government at whatever level they're going to end up doing mindless tasks in a very hierarchical organization so the challenge for those who lead those organizations is how do you change that environment and i believe you can do that and that's part of what the book's about you write in the book Despite the many frustrations and very real shortcomings associated with government, I believe Americans here at every level have the most dedicated, capable, and honest public servants anywhere. So is the outsized anger that Americans seem to have toward our government justified in your view? Yeah, I think, I think actually Senator Sanders and Donald Trump have tapped into a frustration. Most of the media talks about it being a frustration with elected officials, especially at the federal level. But I think also there is in some ways an inchoate frustration with the day-to-day -day challenges that every American faces in dealing with bureaucracies whether it's getting a driver's license or dealing with medical insurance or higher education or public education or companies. They're just, there's, they face these huge faceless organizations that are, in, that are complicated, that are obdurate, that are arrogant, and frankly, often just plain bossy. And and I think it's part of that. I mean, whether you're remodeling your home or getting a license for a business or a hundred other things, every day there's a frustration. And, and part of the argument in the book is it doesn't have to be this way. These institutions can be reformed to better serve those that they were created to serve. And I think you can create an environment in which young people are excited. Now, I think what given the quote that you just read, the truth is I think a lot of people who work for these organizations, and I believed it was true at A&M, and I'll bet it's true here at UT as well. There are a lot of people who work in these organizations who are as frustrated as the people on the other side of the counter. And I say that's the great opportunity for the reformer. People want to be proud of the organization they work for. They want to be esteemed for working for that organization. And all of those people are potential allies for the reformer because there are people inside organizations who have great ideas on how to make them better, how to make them operate better, how to make them more effective, how to deal with new challenges and problems. And so the challenge in front of the reformer is how to harness that desire and and how to use that internal talent, along with a variety of other resources, to actually begin to change organizations for the better. In your, in your career as a public servant, where did you see change affected uh, in, in the most exemplary way? Well, not very many places. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I wrote... You know, I, I am amazed I survived. I wrote my first article on how CIA could improve its analysis of the Soviet Union 
when I had been at the agency for two years. I'm sure my superiors thought that not only was I presumptuous, but I was really stupid. And, and I think that, I mean, I never led an organization that I didn't think could be more agile and better. I, I loved every organization I led. I loved CIA, I loved Texas A&M, I loved the Department of Defense, and I loved the Boy Scouts. But I also love them enough to know that they can all be better than they are. And so I, I guess I would say I have always been discontented with organizations because I see how good they are but I see how much better they could be. All right. How do you explain the lack of leadership in Washington? I think that the one polarization, tough politics have been with us since the beginning of the Republic. I think the one thing the founders never anticipated, particularly with respect to Congress, was that People would, I mean, I think they thought you would be a successful person in business or in law or in medicine or farming or whatever. And once successful, as a burden and a sacrifice, go to Washington and serve a while in Congress and then go home. I, what they never anticipated, in my view, is that you would have people who would spend a lifetime in Congress and people who had never done anything but politics, who had never had any experience outside of Congress. And we have so many people like that in Congress today, or enough of those people, that for them, they can't imagine life outside of Congress. And therefore, and, and they can't imagine life without the deference and the perks and, the, and their psyche of being a member of Congress. And, and when they leave, they don't go home, they go to K Street. I mean, can you imagine, we had two Republican senators in the last election who did not have a residence in the state they purported to represent, Kansas and Illinois, I mean Indiana. And that would have been inconceivable in my view to the founding fathers. So, you know, I always have been a, a opponent of term limits and because um, I always felt we had term limits. They were called elections. Mm. But the reality is, because of gerrymandering and so on, all but about 50 seats in the House are now safe for either Republicans or Democrats. And so the really important election is the one in February in the primary, and where you appeal to the most hardcore elements of the base. Once you get the nomination, you get the election. And, and I, I just worry that, um, 
We need more people who remember where they came from and are willing to go back there um, uh, in order to uh, better serve the people. In order for our country to come together, it necessitates Washington coming together. Uh, you're a lawmaker who goes to, to the district. Uh, there is pressure uh, uh, from your party not to reach out to your colleagues. What would a good leader do in that situation in order to affect comity? Not comedy, but comity. Well, you know, one of the interesting, you know, it's interesting how process begins to affect progress. So I think one of the most negative changes and one of the most deleterious effects of the need for fundraising in congressional races is that the Congress now only meets three days a week. And everybody goes home to raise money. And one of the consequences of that is members of each party don't even know the members of their own party, much less those of the other party. When I first went to Washington in the Johnson administration, you had amazing friendships across the aisle. <laughs> families would get together, people would play golf together, their families would go on picnics together, and they would argue against each other all day long on the, in committees and on the floor, on the hill. But at the end of the day, there were friendships. And it's pretty hard to demonize somebody whose kids just were in a little league game with your kids. That's all gone away. These people, most of their families now don't move to Washington. Some of these guys sleep in their offices. So, so the comity that came from building personal relationships in the old days is pretty much all gone. And that's one of the reasons why these people can be so ugly to each other because they don't know each other. It's like email. And, and so, you know, if I, were, if I were a newly elected president and I were looking at the new leadership of the Congress, I would say, let's do five-day work weeks. And because everybody, Republicans and Democrats, would be equally disadvantaged in terms of fundraising. But, but we have to change the atmosphere in Washington, which has become, I mean, it was polarizing and nasty in the Truman administration and in the Adams administration. But, but if we can't begin to get people talking to each other and figuring out how to solve some of these problems, we're in a heap of trouble. My thanks to our sponsors, the Moody Foundation and St. David's Healthcare, and as always, to you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Updegrove. See you next time.